producer dude another day another podcast i'm not going to ask you if you like them because i do every time and then you say the same thing but we've got a guy that you actually have a little bit of a working relationship with coming up. i do we both worked uh in this for the same parent company um back uh for a long time actually and we've crossed paths with uh with matt our, our guest um throughout my producing of television shows and having him as a guest on some of the shows that I produced prior to working with you. And so, yeah, his, the position he now has uh, was held by a guy who's been on our podcast. One of our first couple podcasts, if I remember correctly, uh, Steve Pollack, kind of a legendary outdoor writer and uh, Matt Markey's our guest today. And he took over that position. And we're going to talk about outdoor writing. We're going to talk about some stories. We're going to talk about a lot of things that, you know, when you get these guys, they're almost professional storytellers, you know, that's kind of what they literally do. So I'm interested to see where this goes and, uh, Definitely chime in because I know this is your neck of the woods here too. Yeah, it is literally what he does. He is a storyteller. <laughs> so uh, let's bring Matt in before he leaves us. <laughs> Matt Markey, welcome to the Big Water Podcast. This has been in the works. I always say this, but we've always, you know, we talk to people for a long time, it seems like, before we actually either get together with schedules or shooting or whatever it is, but we're glad to have you on finally. Thanks. I think the first time we talked about this might have been at the boat show in Cleveland two or three years ago. So I was assuming that you had maybe 207 more important guests. No, 204, actually. 204. <laughs> okay. It's, in, in, all, in all seriousness, like picking people, um, you know, I kind of marched my own beat a little bit, but trying to, I say, pick people that have, everybody has an interesting story to tell. Sure. The people that have an interesting story, the best ones usually don't think they do or mm -hmm. they're not willing to be honest. That's the biggest thing. Like with fishermen, it's not being honest. You like, you know, you see these people that come on and, and that's why I definitely wanted to have you on because you're basically a professional storyteller, you know, and people when we're kids, that's a bad thing. Like you're a storyteller. Right. You're, that's a nice way of saying you're a liar. Right. But, you know, doing what you do, you know you're a storyteller and you meet people. And I think that's the, that's the reason that aside from, you know, me working with you in the, in the past and in present really too, is just getting to, to hear some of that behind the scenes stuff. Cause as much as we have seen maybe in the, in the pages of the blade, if somebody, you know, recognizes your name before we even give you a formal introduction, um, you know, that's what you do. You're, you're, you're telling things, but yet there's a lot that gets left off the page. Am I wrong? There's quite a bit that gets left gets left off, but um, you're right about the storytelling part, and that's what I've always enjoyed about uh, newspaper work. It's not it doesn't necessarily have to be a subject that I'm thrilled about. The people are always interesting, and so it's you know telling their story. And uh, a lot of times, I'll write a story, and the you know people will write in and say, you know, thank you, that was a great story about. I said, no, it's it's your story. All I did was just arrange the words. And I think, you know, the same thing happens when you interview people. You're just trying to get them to relay the story. And sometimes you have to kind of lead them along and ask the right questions and so on. But on some of your podcasts, I've seen you, uh, you know, just kind of slowly pull it out of them, you know. And that's that's what we do. You know, we, we want people to tell their story. Sometimes we have to, uh, you know, entice them to do that. 
people producer dude always says don't ask the same question 10 times and i'm like i do it in a different way because you know <laughs> especially when you when you know you know what i mean when you know behind the scenes something and, and we're never trying to like embarrass somebody and we're not trying to to get like nitty-gritty this is not tmz right but i think a lot of guys are really reluctant or they don't and this is i, I would imagine I, you're way more professional and at this than myself but you're always trying to pull something out of somebody that you know is interesting, but they don't think is. Exactly. That happens very often. And uh, a lot of times I won't ask that question initially. I'll try to, uh, you know, basically get them comfortable first. And then, so when I interview people, I never pull out a tape recorder or anything right away because I think it kind of locks people up. And so I wouldn't ask them, you know, the hard hitting or the, the home run question right out of the gate. I think it's better to uh, get their comfort level at the right place, and then it becomes more conversational. It's not like you're interviewing them or they're on the stand giving testimony and you're cross-examining them. You want it to be more conversational. And those, I think those turn out to be the best interviews is once, once they relax and they understand that it's just two people sitting here having a conversation, that's where you get the best material. We had, uh, I know producer dude's going to chime in here and disagree slightly, but we had Al Linder on the podcast, which is, is a childhood hero, an adult hero. Like, I mean, he's made things. There's a lot of people that have jobs because of Al Linder in the fishing business. And I'm right. probably one of them in, you know, indirectly and, and directly mm -hmm. as well. And it was just funny because when we got done with that, he was like, man, that guy is really good. And I'm like, you know, he meant from a, from a conversation standpoint right. and everything. And he, you know, he's not a fishing guy. Right. But he, he knew about Al, but I don't think he even understood. He was like the Michael Jordan and LeBron and everything put together. Right. And mm -hmm. it, it was just kind of funny because when you have somebody like him, he's our litmus test producer dude, where, you know, he's not a fisherman, but he's been a producer and been doing stuff like this for a very long time. And when you kind of put that person in there, whether we're talking about cosmetics, handbags or whatever, like you see, like, Hey, this person has it even like to your point, like even if you're not interested in that topic. Right. Uh, so and Al Al certainly uh is a storyteller. He can spin a yarn with the best of them. He is he is there, he is a one he's a unicorn. How about that? He's a yeah. unicorn. So yeah. backing up a little bit. So people that don't know, you are the outdoor uh writer for the Toledo Blade, and you've had that for like 12 years or so. Right. And unfortunately that you can correct me exactly what the title is. Unfortunately, I think you're the like last standing man. Uh, is that true? I, I think I'm the last man on the island. Uh, what happened is when the newspaper business started to contract, um, you know, they, they decided a lot of places to cut out the specialty writers. So newspapers that might have had a food editor or a religion editor or a travel editor and an outdoors editor, that those were the first positions that were cut. And so as of uh, about, I think, eight years ago, I'm the last full-time uh, outdoors-only daily newspaper writer in the state. So the other newspapers all use stringers or wire services. Some of them run, you know, our stuff. And it's unfortunate because although it is a niche, you know, in, in the newspaper, there are a lot of folks that still tell me they pick up the paper and that's the first thing they read. They want to read what the outdoors column says or what's in there today, or they read the sports first and then they back up and they go to the news. And uh, it's, you know, there are still a lot of people in the state that write about the outdoors, but I'm the only one that's a full-time uh, daily newspaper writer. 
And you were a uh, you were a beat writer, right? Ohio State and, and that sort of thing. Like, what was that transition like moving over from? And, and why did you do it? I guess if it, if this is something that was going away and you're the last man standing, why why did you make that move? Well, I was a, a beat writer for um, for many years, but I was also the only person in the building who could edit and understand Steve Pollock's copy, and that was because <laughs> I was. That was because I was a, a, a writing a weekly outdoors column for the Tiffin newspaper. I wrote outdoors for the Bowling Green paper, for uh, a number of magazines and so on. And so I had a foundation and an interest in that. And so I had covered the, uh, I was a Bowling Green beat writer for a few years, uh, got to introduce the world to the a young coach no one ever heard of named Urban Meyer. I was the UT beat writer for uh, a number of years, got to cover the uh, that uh, nasty point-shaving scandal when I was on the beat there. And then I did Ohio State football for, uh, I think, about eight, eight or nine years. So I covered part of the, uh, the most of the Trestle era and then the Luke Fickle year. And then when Steve decided to retire, um, he had given me a heads up several months earlier and said, you know, would you be interested? And I said, absolutely, because that's always been my first love. You know, I've always been a sports guy and played a lot of sports and interested in sports, but the outdoors and hunting and fishing, you know, with my dad, that was always my first love. And uh, I continued, you know, to write on a freelance basis for different publications as you know, on the outdoors. And so when Pollock was going to retire, I said, absolutely, I'm interested. And most of the people said, you're leaving the Ohio State football beat where you go to a bowl game every year, you travel all over the country with the team and so on, and then you're going to go write about, you know, smelly guys going fishing. And I said, yes, that's what I want to do. And so I I went to uh, Jacksonville and covered the Ohio State uh, uh, game against, I believe they played Florida in the Gator Bowl, Luke Fickle's last game as the interim head coach. And then the next day, I drove to the Everglades and I was the outdoors editor. That's how the transition started. And uh, it was actually a good thing in a number of ways because I was doing the thing I really loved. And I think Steve felt comfortable kind of passing the baton to somebody he knew and was you know comfortable with. And also, um, over the years, when the Urban Meyer was here, his wife and his girls became good friends with my wife and my daughters. And so we visited him in Utah when he was there and Florida when he was there. And I became friends with him as two dads, not a, a writer and a coach. I became friends with him as, you know, just two dads talking about our kids. And so when he took over at Ohio state, I wouldn't have been comfortable covering them as a beat writer because of what I knew about, you know, things that were personal that we shared and, and conversations and all. And so it was the perfect transition for me, you know, to, to leave the Gator Bowl and the next day be in the Everglades talking about invasive species. So it was, uh, it was quite a jump, but you're right to this day, people think I'm crazy for, for, you know, leaving Ohio state football and going to the outdoors. I don't, it was one of the best career choices I've ever made. I mean, you opened the door, so I'm going to go there with Pollock. You know, we had him on the podcast, and and he is made. He, I'm not going to say he's not Al Linder esque with his storytelling, but he has got like 
he's got some travels. I mean, standing on producer, do you remember the standing on a toilet in like Zimbabwe or something? Because yeah, running from the, or... yeah, running from the guys with machine guns or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he, let's just say where well, there's going to be a part two with him. Uh, I, I would imagine at some point, but I just think about like my dad used to um, he used to rent or. Uh, have a lease for duck hunting on the same island that Luke Lure did on like Maumee Bay. And there's all right. kinds of stories with that and, and my grandpa and stuff. And I can just remember them talking about who's this new guy coming in, you know, referring to Pollock because mm-hmm. Luke had that position for 30 years. And, right. you know, even if it, it's like that in fishing, if I say something, you know, somebody says, Oh, okay. Where if the neighbor says that they're like, Oh, that's BS. You know, it's, right. and I'm sure it's that it was that same thing a little bit with you, or maybe even if it was only just in your own mind where you're like, man, I got some big shoes to fill here and people rather you you're damned if you do you're damned if you don't i guess is the point no matter what you write or do steve could write something and you put your name on it and someone would be like oh that's shit that's that's not like steve would have done that's right people got very comfortable with steve and with his his unique style and so on and so when i took over i heard a lot of that you know well you're never going to be steve pollock i never intended to be steve pollock because i you know, the guy's been a friend of mine for 30 years, and I respect him a great deal. And we're, we're different. He's primarily a hunter who fishes. I'm primarily a fisherman who hunts. And I think there are a lot of other, you know, subtle differences and so on. But there were there were several years of that, Ross, where, you know, you're not Steve Pollock, you know. And, and I would remind them, I'm not trying to be. I'm not claiming to be, you know, in Steve wasn't Lou Kluwer, and Lou Kluwer wasn't Lou Campbell, who preceded him for 30-some years. And so I think it took a while, but then uh, a number of people came around and said, you know, like, yeah, you know, you're you're okay. And, and okay was good enough for me because, uh, you know, as I said, my respect and friendship with Steve, you know, was uh, I wanted to honor what he had established but also not try to mimic, you know, the way that he wrote or the way that he did things. And I always kid him that, um, you know, he had these great stories about Czechoslovakia and Antarctica and Africa and so on. And people ask me, well, you know, where are you going? I said, well, Pollock spent all the money in the budget. So there's, you know, if I go to the Everglades and the UP, you know, that's the big trip for the year. But uh, no, that, that did happen. You can't, you can't replace Vince Lombardi, and I didn't try. Well, and, and, you know, that's not a writer thing, right? That's just a life thing. I mean, football coaches are a prime example or yeah. anything where someone is admiring or observing, listening to someone on a regular basis, radio talk show, it doesn't matter what it is. Right. Maybe even a ginger-headed captain that does a little bit of fishing stuff here in video. Right, but they get comfortable, I think, and, and that's who they're used to. And if you become, I think Steve kind of became – a pseudo member of the family for a lot of people over that 30 years. Yeah. I think the only thing that would, I would, if I'm sitting in your shoes, the only thing that's got to suck if you're being brutally honest would be because what well, you're going to get past that period. It just is what it is like either, or you're moving on or whatever. But right. I think the thing that would suck though is, is when you see, cause again, like you said, looking at his copy for how many years that doing that travel stuff, there's got to be a little bit of like, man, I wish we could do that again. Absolutely. There, there sure is, because I see we have a lot of great stories right here in our backyard and then in our region, the Great Lakes region. We have a lot as well. But then I see stories beyond, you know, so many interesting places. Now, they did send me um, about five years ago. They wanted a uh, 
like a three or a four part series on what is the real impact of, you know, the changing climate, you know, what evidence is. So I went to New England to look at the forests up there and interview some folks about how the forests have changed. I went to the Bay of Fundy, which is off of Maine, which has the uh, incredible lobster fishery and a great cod fishery. And it also has the most extreme tides anywhere in the world. So you'll see pictures of big fishing boats floating and tied at the dock. And then eight hours later, they're sitting in the mud. And then eight hours later, they're back up on top. So I went there. And then I went through uh, the uh, maritime provinces and out to Prince Edward Island. And then there's a small island off there called Lennox Island. There's a native tribe there. And anyways, the the way the tide and the the uh, ocean level has changed, it's washing their historical burial ground into the ocean. So mm-hmm. it, it wearing away at the hillside. So it was a that was a good trip. That was about ten days, and uh, you know through upstate New York into New England, and into. Uh, you know, Nova Scotia and out, out to Prince Edward Island. But other than that, I haven't done anything, you know, that uh, that was the only one that required a passport, let me say. So uh, Pollock had a lot of stamps on his passport. I don't have nearly as many. Well, you know, it's just a different world, right? I mean, you think the, the digital thing is to blame for that because of ultimately money, because people maybe aren't buying as many newspapers or advertising in that? Well, that's, yeah, that's the root of all of it is that uh, the newspaper business has contracted and uh, advertising is, is a, uh, it, you know, it's like sharks feeding or something, people fighting for the advertising dollar. And uh, if we had the same financial position that we did, you know, 20, 25 years ago, I, I'd be going all over the world too. But, you know, it's okay because I've never had a day, Ross, where I woke up and said, boy, I've got nothing to write about. You know, that's not going to happen. I could do this job for 100 years, and I don't think that would ever happen because there are so many interesting people and interesting stories in this area that are related to the outdoors. And the outdoors, in my definition, has never been, you know, me and Joe got a couple of six-packs and went fishing. It's, it's you know, wildlife. It's ecosystems. It's all kinds of different things. You know, people that go to the Lake Erie Islands strictly to look for birds or to camp or, uh, you know, that there's just so many things that fall under that outdoors umbrella that I'd never run out of stories. See, that surprises me just because, again, what I do is not definitely what you do. And we're no, uh, you know, we're not going to win any uh, Hemingway Awards here. But, you know, I write like a monthly column for in fishermen. Mm-hmm. And that's changed because with the print stuff where it used to be 2,000, 2,500 uh, word, you know, features, if you will, more in right. depth. And now we're into those like seven best walleye lures. Give me 600 <laughs> words and 10 pictures, you know, galleries and all these things that are more right. digital focused. But even with that said, I, I've... At this point, I'm probably in the thousands of, of print things that I've done or digital pieces. Um, but I can't imagine, you know, that's over 20 some years when you're doing what, averaging three a week? Three a week, and then I get a full page one day a month. And so, I mean, just, the, you know, how do you go about deciding, like, hey, we're going to talk about the birds today. I mean, are these things that you plan way out? Because I'm a planner personally, but you can at some point to stay relevant can only plan things so far when things right. happen. So how, give me that process on on how you do some of those things. Or is it people just kind of, you know, emailing you in that, you know, notify you to things or, you know, sometimes I'll obviously send you a note. 
I, I try to do it. I try to plan. I'm a planner too, but I also have to make that plan very flexible because things do happen that are, you know, news or somewhat breaking news and you have to adjust for those things. And I also try to balance it where, you know, and if it's seasonal, so there'll be a lot of stories about hunting, but there's also stories now about walleye fishing because of the tournaments going on and the phenomenal fall fishing. And then I also get uh, a lot of input from, you know, the MDNR, ODNR, nationally, wild, you know, national wildlife organizations and so on. You kind of sort through all that, but I'm, I'm looking for a balance to try to cover a number of different interests, but also trying to match things up with the season and what's important at that particular time. And I like to do, you know, educational or informational things, you know, a couple times a month. So we're not always telling a story. Maybe we're talking to, uh, you know, Travis Hartman and asking him, well, why are the walleye here at this time of year? He doesn't why know. He's people, boring. <laughs> why are people catching them, you know, casting from shore in the snow in November, but you can't necessarily do that, you know, in June or July. And those stories I enjoy. But again, the story would be about fishing from the shore in the fall, but also there's some Travis Hartman perspective and personality in there and then some of the individuals to do that. But you always have to be ready in my position. You probably don't deal with this, you know, nearly as much, but for breaking news, because I had something planned, you know, a few weeks ago. Walleye cheaters. It was ready to go. And then I get a call, you know, somebody uh, po tried to poach a deer in the middle of the night in Rossford and it bled out on, you know, some lady's driveway. And so that becomes the story. And then you have to chase that down in the old fashioned, you know, news reporter fashion. And then um, and then you just kind of adjust, you know, on the fly. But uh, there still are breaking news stories that I have to, you know, insert here and there. But I, I am a planner and a long term planner because, you know, there are so many things that I want to get in the paper and only so much room. Yeah, we that's not really our deal. We did have two and actually ironically within about the last year we had the one of my really close friends caught that uh one of the biggest smallmouth ever caught, like oh, yeah. top mm -hmm. three all time. And um I was literally there for that and then obviously the cheater scandal and we did those what producer do within twenty four hours of it happening. Yeah, I think we were we were on uh Sunday and it went that happened on Friday, right? I think sort of something yeah, like i think that, we yeah. had it up because we did it like the next day or whatever yeah, but yeah. yeah that's not really our deal per se but again we're we're learning you know with this stuff like i'm a fishing guy that we're just happen to be doing some media stuff because mm -hmm. i think people like hearing about this stuff and it's it's totally different the one thing that i could tell you that probably nobody cares and maybe that's why i didn't do it as much is i wish some of the people that i worked with would allow me to do more perspective pieces because there's things that I come across all the time. And I think guys sometimes think of me as the, you know, the hard ass or the jokester or the fish catching guy. And it's like, you know, you see a lot of neat things and, and, you know, sometimes you get not really serious, but just looking at things a different way. You know, as you get older, sure. you see things differently. And, and, uh, you know, as I work into more of a mentoring relationship on some of the pro staffs, you know, some of the other, the newer guys, rather they're young or old, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think those things are important. It's kind of like old Jim Foffrich, you know, who I know you've seen through the column right. there. Like he kind of, he, he told me things that are now clicking in, you know what I mean? Like, right. what are you talking, what are you talking about? And now, mm -hmm. uh, like one of his famous ones is he, he used to tell me daily, son, I hope I live long enough to see you just enjoy a day on the lake. 
because, you know, back then I was just trying to earn my keep. I was the young right. kid. I was trying to justify my existence. And, you know, when you're in your, you know, it was in my teens and early 20s there, you're like, Jim, what the hell are you talking about? Like now I understand that statement. And I tell that exactly. to people like I'm the old guy and, uh, you know, they don't often understand that, but I'm sure you can can appreciate that. And yeah, absolutely. I think sometimes we're missing the like the perspective pieces that you do. Like, again, even if I don't care about the topic or even I hate to say it, the person, right? Like, I don't know this. I can't relate to them. I think I can relate to the situation or to somebody that's just offering that up. And I think that's one thing that I, that it's good that like outdoor writers like yourself are doing because you just don't see that anymore. Like I said, I, I, I'm putting my foot in my mouth because of the people that, you know, help uh, provide for my, you know, put food on the table. But when I seven great walleye lures, the five best new ice fishing lures, and it's just like, oh, yeah. But yeah, it, you, it's, you we're in a clickbait world. Yeah, you serve uh, you serve a multitude of masters, and uh, I'm sure that's the same way with you. Is that they want a certain product, a certain way, and uh, I'm very fortunate and also appreciative of the fact with the blade is that uh, they give me a ton of latitude. I've never had you know in the 12 years I've been in this job, never had an editor or uh, you know manager come to me and say don't do that. Don't write about that. Don't Not even Frank. Well, Not even well, Frank. Frank. Oh, I know who Frank. Frank Corso, the old, he was the uh, sports editor for a while. He was. Like, he was a sports editor. Yeah. Frank gave me great latitude as well. It's just uh, as long as I had my stuff in on time, he thought it was great. And so, uh, and he wasn't an outdoors guy, but he had an appreciation for the fact that many readers of the Blade are, and many readers, and you know, that read the Blade expect an outdoors perspective or an outdoors column you know several times a week it, it's become part of the blade like the peach section and you know different quirky things that, that newspapers have and so you know i feel very blessed ross that they haven't said well you need to do more about this or you need to do less about this because i've written some things that were loosely connected to the outdoors i mean there was a column i wrote um a number of years ago about gun control. And it was because Bob Costas had come on an NFL broadcast and went into a long, you know, diatribe about guns. And a lot of what he said was inaccurate. And so I wrote a column about how inaccurate that was and how when you talk about guns, it not only affects hunters and fishermen and you know, it affects homeowners who maybe have a firearm to protect themselves. And then, you know, some people will write in and it'll be the uh, the old, uh, you know, shut up and just write about fishing, you know. But I've written a number of pieces that have kind of touched a nerve, I think, uh, in other areas. And they were more perspective of my personal feelings. I remember when, uh, you know, the guys in the NFL decided they wanted to kneel during the national anthem. I wrote a column about that that appeared in the outdoors. And I said, as the outdoors writer, I've met a ton of veterans that are hunters and fishermen and conservationists and all. And these people are being, you know, disrespected by Colin Kaepernick deciding that he was just going to kneel during the national anthem. And uh, it appeared, you know, on in the outdoors section with my picture and the outdoors logo over top. But it was very loosely connected to the outdoors. But there was some connection. And uh, the blade has allowed me to do that. And uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative of that because just like you, you know, I'm interested in fishing and hunting, but that's not all I think about. 
you know, I pay attention to what's going on with Israel and Hamas, and I pay attention to the economy and politics and so on, as I'm sure you do. So we, you know, we, we think about these, we have opinions about these things as well. Besides the eight best walleye fishing lures, I'm sure you have an opinion on those things as well. Well, I mean, to me, it's really simple. I think if you have people behind the scenes, at, you know, Outdoor Magazine, one, two, three, Outdoor Life, Field and Stream. I, I'm not even going to use names because I work for most of those. I'm not going to get my wiener and too much of a meat grinder. But <laughs> I can tell you that the magazines that have the best, like there's there's all kinds of people that have the Matt Markey's or the Hemingway's or the Bob McNally's or whoever that they all contract out, right? So like in Fisherman Magazine, has got 20 writers that they work with on a regular basis. But really the heroes of that, in my opinion, are, are the editors behind the scene because I am certainly no... Hemingway, but I can organize thoughts and I have insight that, you know, maybe you don't because you're in your cube, right? Like I'm out there and I'm seeing mm -hmm. it. So a guy right. like you helps polish that up. So, you know, Joe Schmo sees that and maybe we get rid of some grammar and stuff. But because of that, there's very few editors that I've worked with that I think get it. And the ones that do that allow me, you know, it shows, I think, ultimately to the customer. And I think that, you know, the final product, whatever you want to call it, the, the reader, because, as an example, most of the magazines I've worked with, I have an article in their top five all time. Not because I'm an amazing writer, but because I have a topic that I think the general public was interested in that right. most outdoor writers or don't know, don't have that insight, or they had an editor that wouldn't let that fly. Exactly. I can remember getting shot, shot down about a, um, I mean, this is like 15, 20 years ago, about a health, um, you know, like, I can't remember exactly the, the whole premise of it, but it was more of one of those like, hey, fishing is difficult when you do it 200 days in a row type of thing. So here's some health things, you know, like, yeah. you know, and this was like, it was like nutrition before what we know is nutrition now, you know, hydration, just mm -hmm. basic kind of simple things. And I can remember several to this point, I still buddies with these guys. I mean, they weren't just didn't shoot it down. I mean, they were dicks. And now all of a sudden, like Al Linderson, Troy had a whole column just, and I can remember telling the one guy, I was like, hey, that seemed to work out pretty well. Too bad you guys could have had that opportunity, right. you know, because now all of a sudden we, we look at things differently. And I think it's just like, again, we're talking about fishing, but this is a life thing where anything you get involved with, the people that have some of those outside the box ideas, there's that timing of too soon or already got taken by somebody. You know what I mean? You almost have to be at the cusp of before everybody else did it. So you don't look like a follower, but yet not too early because sometimes people just aren't ready for things. Yeah. And, and you're, I, I'm thankful for uh, the editors that I've had over the years, a, a lot of times for things that they did and a lot of times for things that they didn't do. And they left things alone and trusted my gut or my judgment. And, you know, it, it makes a difference, but I've had a couple that were overly aggressive at times and um, change the meaning or the context of what I intended to write. The most glaring example, um, maybe eight, ten years ago, I did a story on, you know, the, the walleye run is in full swing. I go through the parking lots and I'm keeping track of the license plates and I see Tennessee and Kentucky and Iowa and I'm writing about how people from all over the Midwest and a wide perspective are coming to the Maumee River to fish for walleye in April, you know, is, isn't this crazy? And um, the story went in, they had a nice photo, you know, of people lined up, you know, like soldiers and, you know, some kind of revolutionary battle shoulder to shoulder. 
And then <laughs> that's the, not what it is. Yeah. And then the, the main headline was okay, but there's usually like a teaser or tagline above that. And it said, hoping to snag a walleye. And, oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I even know that's bad. Yeah. 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 And Wrong I, crowd. I yeah. went in and said, that's not only a bad headline, that's a terrible headline. And here's that's, that's why. an illegal, that's an illegal byline. But like you said, it's it's their lack of familiarity with what we know and what we write about. And so since then, and I didn't beat them up too badly because I understood they just didn't know, you know, that's a cool term. We'll throw that in there. I said, no, then if that was the case, then all those people would get fined and some of them might go to jail. And so since then, um, there's been more of a hands off and I'll get a cell phone call at, you know, 945 at night. Hey, I was thinking about this. Is this okay? You know, I was thinking about doing this on a cut line or a headline or something. And I, I think that's a, it's a professional courtesy, but I also think it's something that you or myself or Steve Pollack is due because we have a certain bank of knowledge about these the intricacies of these topics and the folks that are looking at our copy and maybe laying out the page or the magazine or whatever they don't have that and so if ross uses a certain term you know a, a bottom bouncer could mean one thing in a fishing context and it could mean a whole different thing in in a nightclub context and so whoa whoa that got <laughs> naughty quick yeah but i mean that's what i mean the term could scare them but there's, we understand what it means. There is a, and you would know who it is. There's a really well-known outdoor editor um, for a very long time, more in print, print, not not uh, papers. But, and I started calling him Bread, uh, mm -hmm. and I never told. He still doesn't know why. But all the other guys were writers and stuff. Like, dude, why are you call him Bread? Like, man, you don't want to mess with that guy. And I'm like, I don't care. And uh, the joke was, I said, because he takes all the meat out of everything. Like, to your point, you would read something, you're like. You, I gave you like insight, like stuff that you have to be really in the know to know, you know, that right. this is an advantage over A, B, and C. And he would always take that out and just leave the vanilla. And so I started calling him bread and uh, it caught on. And uh, <laughs> I, I think he thinks it's some type of compliment, but I, coming from me, he should probably know better. But I mean, so again, what, with what I kind of do, and I'm only trying to relate to kind of understand and bounce those things back and forth, because you know, the, the, the paper world is totally different than like what I do with, with right. magazines, but, mm -hmm. but in the same way, for the same reasons, you know, that the, the revenue is down, you know, the readers are down because of this quick and dirty thing that like we already beat into the ground. But a, a short story that I, I tell people all the time, like if you fished with me, you probably have heard this story where we're out in the boat and uh, my phone's ringing. And I just literally told a guy, one of my other guys running a boat, he's like 200 yards away. Like, Hey, I'm, I'll call you in a minute and get you you know, some info here, what's going, what we're doing, because we're catching them good. And my, so my client, I said, Hey, answer the phone, put it on speaker. Well, it happened to be somebody from Alberta, Canada. <laughs> and so accidentally answer the phone kind of SOL here. And as it turns out, fast forward in the story, this guy was on the shitter in deer camp in Canada. And he said, Hey man, uh, I don't really know you or anything, but can you tell me about this spoon article? And I'm trying, I'm reading through, cause again, I you know, don't write as much as you do, but right. enough. And I'm like, man, I don't remember a spoon article in my life. And the guy flips it. Over. I said, well, what are you? oh, it's walleye insider. He flips it over. And I'd be lying if I told you the date. But it was like 10 or 12 years prior that this magazine 
I'm assuming from the States had made it up to a deer camp was left in a bathroom, right. a stack of deals. And so, you know, it's like that pass around rate. I think it used to be seven, like every newspaper, they said, you know, figure seven people read that, whether it's the barber shop or the diner or whatever, or a household of four. And I think people still kind of forget that, you know, cause there's a lot of people I know that want to put that in their hand and the Kindle thing is maybe catching on or whatever, but they, there's still that whole, put it in your hand, read it later maybe more of a magazine than a newspaper because that is a little more time sensitive, but I don't know. Is that just like an old school thought or you still feel that way too? No, I still feel that way. Um, there, there are, there's a pretty clear line, I think, and it's right at about maybe 45 or 50 years old where people insist on wanting to hold the newspaper in their hand. They want to fold it up. They want to set it down. They want to pick it up. They want to have that um, flexibility and that comfort level that the paper's here, my cup of coffee is here, and everything's right in the world. And then I pay really close attention to the way people read when I'm in a news, when I'm in a uh, airport or you know a restaurant or whatever. How how are they reading? How are they getting their news? And um, I'll, you know, unfortunately, from my perspective, Ross, a lot of uh, folks are getting their news in two paragraphs on the screen of their, of their telephone, you know, their cell phone. And uh, you just, you just can't get into the kind of depth that we want to get into or that we need to get into in some of these topics in two or three paragraphs, you know, you, you can't do that. So I, I wish there was more folks that want to read the newspaper the traditional way and want to read magazines. I still, you know, get magazines and like to read them that way. I don't read things on my on my phone, um, you know, much at all. And even on the laptop, I'm, I'm not that comfortable trying to read the newspaper on my laptop. I want to hold it. You know, I want to have it. I want to lay it down, pick it up and wow. so on. And it's, There's so much clickbait where things aren't even related to the deal. Right. And I don't really want to go down the rabbit hole of it's not necessarily I don't think the format as much for me anymore is more of like the qualifying who's actually writing this. You know, because yeah. mm -hmm. it, the cred, the credibility, which again, that's a, a whole different podcast. Like producer dude's going to steer me right away from that, going on a rant. <laughs> but you know, again, it's rather I'm listening to Matt Markey on my Kindle or a podcast here through YouTube, like we're going to be doing, or you know, Field and Stream Magazine or something. Right. I, I, I like you trust Matt Markey, like you know that voice, you know that person, kind of like we used to have with the newscasters. You know, and right. now all of a sudden there's we just this have. thing of just used to and and it's you know the the things that uh, are different producer dude do you agree with uh the credibility thing because he has worked with an awful lot of these guys and did you see that when you worked with the guys rotating through versus somebody that like was the sports guy for 10 years or something sure i mean if you've got if you've been there you've you pretty much have some instant credibility right if you've been there for any period of time you know a lot of the stuff online now is not even written by people I mean, honestly, it's just AI. It, it just you're writing; they're just generating articles based on information. So you you really have to look and and uh, see if it's correct and verify everything. Interesting. And then there's also some purposeful um, misinformation, right? Uh, hashtag fake news, but we'll we'll move on from that. But <laughs> I'm sure that has to be one of the biggest nightmares that you deal with, though, as far as maybe you less than someone else at the blade 
but the fake news thing like that hashtag or that reality because of unfortunately again no different than law enforcement or anything else one bad apple out of a hundred and all of a sudden you're labeled in with that it, I mean, it is dealt with that yeah it's it's a big problem and i even though i write you know in the outdoors realm you know i read the entire newspaper and i'm pay attention to the news and so on and what i've seen is uh not only uh the, the kind of the slow deterioration of credibility because so many different voices or sources are out there and you don't know which ones are reliable and which ones are not. A lot of people don't know. But I also see the uh, the sin of omission is has become a big concern for me where, you know, if a certain news organization doesn't like the direction of a story or the facts and so on, they just don't report it. And so it's like it never happened. It didn't happen because we I didn't, didn't lie. I just didn't tell you everything. Right. It just didn't happen. And and that I see that more and more. And even in, you know, uh, you know, I get the New York Times and I read it, even though I don't agree with uh, their uh, editorial policy and a lot of times their reporting style. And I'll notice that um, there are some what I consider fairly major national, international news stories, and they will either not report them or they'll be buried on page 22 where, you know, it's, it's right above the Macy's ad and, and a lot of people won't see it. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not real proud of my profession right now. I mean, it was different when I started out. Um, you know, I'm one of those kids that, uh, I think went into journalism because of, uh, you know, all the president's men and that, you know, great job of reporting that basically changed history and, and uh, how important the news media was. And it's, uh, you know, we don't have any more, you know, uh, credible like Walter Cronkite's or anything like that, you know, nationally. I think locally, you know, somebody like Lee Conklin on Channel 13, he's been around a long time. He's very honest. He's very professional. He's very good at what he does. So, people are comfortable with news delivered by somebody like that. And I think they develop the same level of comfort with, um, you know, writers or reporters. And I, I believe, and I hope that over the years, the last 12 years, people have developed that, you know, with me. And I hear from, I probably get um, maybe 20 or 25 emails on a, a Sunday evening or a Monday about the Sunday column or the Sunday story. And a lot of times a dozen of those are the same people and they, you know, they follow you and they trust you and they uh, they're interested in your perspective or what you have to say. And, and, and um, that's nice, but it's also, I feel an obligation to them to, you know, make it honest, make it fair, make it balanced, make it, uh, you know, keep the variety there, keep it interesting and all. And it's, it's an obligation that I kind of start the day with each day. So today I'll work on, my Sunday column and, you know, that'll be in, in, uh, in the front of my mind is that, um, you know, I want to relate this story and I want to be fair to the people I'm writing about, but also be fair and uh, honest with those who are going to read it and don't really know that much about the subject. So do, does somebody that would be like a reasonable person, if you want to call it that with these emails, cause I'm sure you get non-reasonable emails, Boy. but just, does some of those people, cause I think, the reason I ask this, because I, I feel it's true with myself, maybe help give you a different perspective on your own even topic or ideas because somebody else is just looking at this just from a different walk of life. Absolutely. And I've, I get that a lot of times from people who I think the now when you write for, 
you know, specialty magazines, whether it's Outdoor Life or In Fishman or whatever, you're pretty certain that the people who are reading that have the basic knowledge of of the subject. You know, whether it's not anymore, but I know what you mean. (laughs) Okay, you you could you could operate with that assumption. You know, I, I have to caution myself that if I'm writing about you know hunting or fishing, I can't assume that the person knows. If I say, you know, well, well, it's the the jig bite is really good. You know, I can't assume that the reader knows exactly what I'm talking about. So you have to have an explanatory graph or so to make sure you're bringing in the other people who don't know what that is. And I've I've really been cognizant of that, especially writing about hunting and about deer hunting, because deer hunting is one of those red flag things that I've, I still don't fully understand why a certain percentage of the population and the readership go off the deep end when it's deer hunting. And I think it's what I call the Disneyfication of deer. It's that people think every deer is Bambi and that deer can talk and they can walk up in your backyard and have a conversation and all like you see on a Disney cheeseburgers. Yeah. And, and, I I try to explain to people that that's not the case. These are wild animals. And obviously, if we harvest them, I want to see that used and so on. But a lot of people, you know, hunt deer and harvest deer and feed their family. And, you know, I'm told by biologists over and over that, you know, we have too many deer on the landscape because we've eliminated all of their natural predators. There are no more wolves. There are no more bears. There are no more, you know, mountain lions and so on that used to keep the population in check. We eliminated those because they scared us and they killed our livestock. But now we have these large deer herds and a lot of them are living in, you know, these big parks or reserves or whatever, where the nutrition is great. So the doe has one fawn the first year and then the next year she'll probably have twins. And so the population grows exponentially. I said, you know, if we don't hunt, the only other way to mitigate that that population is disease or somebody hitting them with a car or a minivan. And we don't want that. I said, hunting is the limiting, the sole limiting factor on deer populations. And people aren't shooting them and leaving them lie. People are hunting deer processing it and they're feeding their families and there's also a large group of hunters who will go out and they'll put one deer in the freezer and then the next one or two they donate to a cherry street mission or something like that so i try to talk to these folks reasonably and say show me the downside how is this bad and it's you know i got an email ross last week from a guy who said these deer hunters are no different than hamas and this is an educated person who used to be a teacher in, in this area. And I mean, and I try to be rational and reasonable with them and so on, but I'm not sure you can, you know, at some So do point, you respond, do you respond to that email to that guy or? I didn't respond to him because this is like nut email number 37 from him. I respond to everybody unless, you know, they go off the deep end or, it's all vulgarity and so on, you know, and, and I get a lot of that. And, uh, 
I, I respond to most of them, but I don't respond to that because how, how do you how do you reason with somebody like that? I mean, well, here, I, so producer dude, you're good. I want you to jump in on this one. So again, what we do is different, but it's really not. So with us, it's producer dude is on my social media accounts. Like he can pop up on any of these things right. and he kind of helps um, guard me, shall we say from doing something uh, stupid because <laughs> he'll, he'll either delete or be like, Hey, um, just so you know, cause I'm out fishing and I'll get like a text. Right. Hey, just so you know, um, Bob Smith 3602 um, said, and you're like, it's insane. And so, you know, as, as I work with these manufacturers stuff, like Ross engage with these people, you know, on the social media stuff. And so some of these questions that are, like you said, maybe not crazy, like you're a Bambi killer, you know, right. screw you, death, die, whatever. But in between where it's like, hey, this is a little outlandish. If I was looking you in the face, I'd probably tell you to kiss, your, you know, kiss my ass type of yeah. thing. But I will, I will respond to some of these guys in a diplomatic way that most people don't know that I have. Mm-hmm. And the people literally respond back, Matt, like, man, I was just trying to get you rile you up or I was just trying to get I, I can't believe you responded to me. Uh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to be a dick. And I'm like, is this really what people are doing with their time now that that is they're going around to random things like these aren't even generally people that you know, follow us or we've got a handful that just always right producer do that just seem to put up these things that you can't even. Uh, they must be. Yeah, I can. Because- I can think of a couple people right now that are on YouTube yeah. all the time that's just saying weird stuff. Like what? You don't even. And, understand- and he'll literally, yeah, he'll literally text me. He'll be like, you know, we're not even going to give them the justice of putting their names out there because I think that's what they want. But he's like, oh, I already took this down. Or do you want me to delete this? Or did you see this? Because this guy, like, and it's it's like unintelligible, not from the standpoint of agreeing or disagreeing, but it's just mumbo jumbo where you know four hundred errors in spelling. Not that I'm, you know. Uh, Webster here, but it's like, huh? And I, I just don't understand the mentality of people with that. I just, I don't because I think, I think there's a there's a certain level of courage that people have when they can write it in an email. You know, every, everybody's a tough guy when they can do it anonymously or pseudo anonymously on an, in an email. But and, and I, I have responded to some of those that I consider like fringe, nutty, and, and but one. One case that I remember that actually turned out, you know, a woman wrote me an email again about deer hunting and how horrible it was and awful it was and terrible. And anybody that does this or promotes this is a terrible person or whatever. And I just I emailed her back and I said, I appreciate your opinion and and I respect it. But I think, you know, you you don't have all the information you need to formulate a really, you know, important position on this. You know, why don't we talk about it further? I said, uh, you know, pick a place and I'll meet you, my treat, and we'll sit down and have coffee and talk about it for half an hour. She was shocked, first of all. But we ended up meeting at a Panera somewhere in Toledo and talked for like 45 minutes and became friends. She didn't understand, you know, the, the issues involved in overpopulation of deer. And then I told her, well, at Wildwood Metro Park, there are so many deer that they've defoliated the first six feet of the ground. And so all the birds and small mammals that nest on the ground have nowhere to hide. And so the coyotes and the fox and all have decimated them. And this kind of cascades, you know, a lot of the rare plants that they have there and also at oak openings can't get established because the deer are so, there's so many deer, they're over browsing. And so when I explained more of the science behind it, and why we need to have deer hunting to get back to the balance that we took out when we eliminated the predators. 
she had a, you know, she was an intelligent person and she had a much better understanding of it. But some of the folks that email me, Ross, I, I could cite all kinds of biology and science and all. And they would still say, you know, you're a murdering son of a bitch and I hate your guts. I mean, that's that's just the way they feel. Well, it's just like, you know, when you do a seminar, you know, I know you don't do a lot of speaking engagements and, and you just sometimes look at these eyes. I can imagine a teacher would be the same way. Like I have a lot of friends that are my sister's a teacher and, and you know, you got 30 kids in a class and, you know, 25 of them are picking daisies and just staring at the ceiling. And if you try to reach one or two, maybe that like in your scenario with that lady, instead of a, a them versus us scenario, you know, you're taking the high road. And it's like, hey, let's try to educate that maybe five, 10 percent that we can because that's maybe even a role, even though we have different platforms, it's a similar situation. And, um, you know, I've got friends that are crazy liberal, you know, I'm not, and we're still friends, you know, generally probably because of outdoor pursuits and things. And, and that's all right. But I think sometimes these people, cause we have similar conversations, you know, I have friends they are, they're, I don't know if I'd say anti hunters, but they're, um, they're closer to being anti hunter than they are accepting of it. How about that? Right. Yeah. And, 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 I, have, and I think I have family members the same way that, members in my family that are against hunting, but we can have a rational conversation about it. And I have friends that are the same way. And I think that's important that I'll listen to you. You listen to me. Sure. We don't agree, but we were, were respectful about it. But I, you know, some of the, uh, the emails and the feedback I get, there's, I just see it as a hopeless, you know, black hole. So I don't respond. Hey Matt, what have you? Uh, what have you <laughs> with the walleye cheaters? What kind of response did you get? I mean, you were pretty adamant, um, pretty opinionated, and have been the whole time with with those with the walleye cheaters. Like, what kind of response did people give you for for your stance there? That story and that set of stories has had more reaction than anything that's ever been published in the Blade, and that's going back. Oh, you know, well over a hundred years. And I think it's because number one, it, it's a, it's crime and people love crime. I mean, some of those are leading stories, you know, that uh, postal carrier that got uh, busted for faking that uh, robbery or whatever in Toledo last week. That's the number one story in the website. You know, the guy says he got robbed because all he was trying to do was get a few extra days off. People love crime. And I think people love oddball crime and cheating in a walleye tournament, you know, qualified as that. And I also think another thing that drew folks in was they had no clue how much money is involved, not only in, you know, winning the Lake Erie, you know, walleye trail tournament, but in the brawl and, you know, different walleye tournaments, they had no clue how much money was involved. And so, when that initial story ran, within 48 hours, I got calls from radio stations in British Columbia, Sydney, Australia, and the Dan Patrick Show that all wanted me to go on live and talk about the walleye cheaters because they, you know, it was, it was bizarro world to them. It was a crime that they could never imagine taking place and the audacity of just throwing you know window weights inside a fish and expecting that people to accept that but also the video obviously sold a lot of it when it looked like the angry, no video no, no story the angry mob you know would lynch those two guys if it hadn't been you know for 
the tournament director intervening. And, you know, the reaction I got was, number one, that people were fascinated by that story. And I wrote probably six or seven follow-ups on additional foibles that these individuals were involved in. I went to Cleveland to cover the arraignment, you know, to cover the sentencing and, and so on. And the reaction was that people were shocked by the whole thing. And then as they learned more about it, that, well, both of those guys had, um, you know, domestic violence somewhere on their record and had other, you know, in instances where they had run-ins with the law, you know, it, it became clear that um, these probably wouldn't, weren't good dudes. And, uh, you know, they, they shouldn't have been in the tournament. And, you know, what happened, you know, people, a lot of people thought, well, the, the overwhelming reaction was they got off way too easy. That if, if Ross and Matt go and try to rob a bank and we get caught in the act, we are not going to get 10 days in jail. But they have been essentially tried to rob that tournament and those other competitors of roughly $30,000. You know, and there's a fair preponderance of evidence that this probably happened in prior events. They got 10 days. And so a lot of the reaction nationally and some internationally was, Boy, did they did they ever get off easy? But uh... yeah, you know what though? Here's the deal. Because like this is in my wheelhouse, right? Right. I don't disagree. Do I think more should have happened to them? Absolutely. But I feel like at least a little bit of a precedent was set. Because again, and we'll talk about some of this later. I want to go completely down this rabbit hole. But the amount of people that have been caught poaching here, where it's not I got two extra fish, or I decided even to double trip. We're talking about mass amounts of, of fish, hundreds, you know, four hundred smallmouth out of season, intentionally going out to rob the resource, and they get like a five hundred dollar fine or something silly, or they take their boat and their truck, but they get it back. So at least in this circumstance, they did take their boat. Yes, it was probably allegedly from winnings that were also fraudulent yeah. but again we've set that precedent because even like the bass fishing world i mean the bass master tour right like that's the super bowl they made adjustments in their tour because of a walleye club in ohio right. so as, mu as much as i think it's shitty like because i feel passionate about this obviously i'm involved with this my buddies you know put that the lake Erie walleye trail and the, that walleye club together 20 some years ago and so i i feel like I feel burdened by that too, you know, from a fishing industry standpoint, because people then looked at me that know what I do or would, you know, through these different things. And they said, Hey, well, you know, this is what happens in walleye tournaments. They just assume this is a status quo, kind of like you mm -hmm. had hinted at. Yeah. Um, but I still feel like, don't you, I, I, I didn't learn. I confirmed something. Okay. Because I was in an insane amount of press to the point I, I started backing out of these things because originally it was done because sponsors asked me to go represent for certain things where these guys were claiming they were representing companies, which I actually do. And so I was almost a PR guy. Um, my mom still probably can't believe that I was acting as a PR guy as a positive <laughs> spin either. But, um, you know, and these things, and I read some of these things afterwards to your point of what is either put in or misleading. And, you know, they, they brought these guys on to be the Al Linder and, and in publications like the Washington Post, New York Times, different, all kinds of different places. I think things were mis misrepresented to the average person that doesn't fish, much like you, what you said with somebody deer hunting, right. where 
and again, you can name any of these things because they didn't, how can you even do your due diligence on time when you go to print in two hours or whatever it is? I can remember, I think it was the New York times called me like 11 o'clock at night and they're like, we got 30 minutes till we got to get this going. I need some quotes. I need this. I need that. Right. And, but, and again, I'm not even going to name an individual one, but generally speaking, especially some of them in Europe, um, where the amount of information they put in there that was just totally not legit from the standpoint of making these guys to be the Michael Jordan of the fishing industry or that it was $100,000, like numbers that could be easily fact-checked. Like you said, roughly 20-something with every bonus, everything. Right. I mean, that's like the, the gravy and everything on top of it. And it was funny because it was actually the BBC, in my opinion, that I personally dealt with that had the most accurate, that didn't just take my word for it. They said, we're going to call you back. We're basically going to fact check you too. I said, perfect. Yeah, and, exactly. and, and, and the guy, and the guy was like, so you're not mad. I'm like, you should, you don't know me from shit. Mm-hmm. Like, and you're just going to put this. And, and I was kind of surprised by that. And I guess I, I confirmed that there was a lot of those different uh, media outlets and other ones that I didn't even contribute anything to that. I'm like, man, you guys are just, this is shit journalism. <laughs> it's just- it is. And it's, I think, Ross, it's the it's the rush to be first. It's no longer the rush to be right or be correct. It's the rush to be first. And I saw a lot of that, too, where there were glaring inaccuracies because everybody wanted to jump on the train, you know, right away. And there were a lot of, uh, you know, factual intricacies involved in this that you would understand and that I would understand and, uh, you know, Pollock would understand and Bob Barnhart would understand. But a lot of the the average folk would have no clue. So this story needed a lot of, uh, you know, set dressing or fixing, you know, setting up the scenario. So you understood, well, exactly why this mattered and why did they do it in this fashion? And, you know, I had people email me, well, you know, didn't the judges see him put the the, the weights in the fish? I said no. The, the field of play is, is over a hundred miles wide. How could the judges see them? I said they leave the dock. Nobody sees them. They come back. You know, it's it's just it's a format that people don't understand. You know, and. No, and, and I- yeah, I don't want to turn this into the cheaters podcast because we already did that and we got like a million views on it. It was crazy. And but the comments yeah. on that were the same thing. Where, you know, again, producer dude, I mean, you read more of those comments. I gave up on most of them because they were so ludicrous to a certain <laughs> point. Like the, once the fishermen were done with it, and people were like, Hey, dumb fishermen. You're know, like, I'm there's I'm paraphrasing nine thousand comments. Hey, dumb fishermen. Oh, that's ac- that's oh. accurate. How about you try a, a metal detector? And it's like, okay, until they put something non-metallic in them, like walleye flies, or they were using cages. Yeah. Like, I think that, again, we're not going to relive this. Everybody had a simple answer, right? right. It was like, oh, well, you're stupid. Why didn't you think of this? Why, you know, like, yeah, and it's like these guys were using, allegedly, were using cages. They had fish that, that, you know, a little bucket holder thing that I helped develop for Ranger Boats underneath the console. Literally one of my little uh, deals that I did with them. They were hiding fish behind there, or at least they found uh, scales and all kinds of nasty, you know, fish parts back there. So there there was, obviously it was a lot more. The the lead in fish is the oldest trick in the book, and it makes a good story in the video cutting them out, rolling down the parking lot. Uh, right. But there was so many things going on there. And again, like some of the organizations I've worked with, like, Ross, please don't tell some of the stuff, you know, because you're going to educate for, you know, future cheaters, because there are things 
Al Linder, when we had him, he said, he said, listen, the technology has not technology has surpassed the current rules that we have. If you want to be a criminal in today's day and age, it's it's like it's like football, right? You have to have a really, really good defensive back to outdo these wide receivers. And they keep right. changing rules to make the, the field uh, you know, a little more fair, if you will. Right. And it's the same thing with cheating. If you really want to cheat, you're going to be able to do it if you just don't get really silly, stupid, which most people do, just like Robin Banks. You know, I always say that one of the most notorious uh, bank robbers, somebody just has to fact check who this guy was, but they didn't catch him for years. And they finally caught him when he, his wallet fell out on a sidewalk or something, you know, after, mm -hmm. after like heist number 40 or something. Yeah. So, and there's I, a, there's a theory out there that I've heard from a number of, you know, tournament fishermen that um, allegedly these guys got away with it a number of times and got sloppy and they got careless and just dropped the lead weights in there and, and then they get busted. And uh, that's, I think that's plausible. Yeah. Hey, we're done with that. That's However, fun. you know, I, I think again, one of the things that's fascinating to me because as, as a fishing guide, people always like, Hey, so what, what's the deal with being a fishing guide? And, and it got, granted, that's a portion of what I do in the fishing business, but it's the one people see probably the most or think about the most. And I think one of the coolest things after, I don't know, about 5,000 days of doing it, you know, 25, 26 years or whatever it's been, is the people. You know, and I think that relates to you because for me, I have super famous clients, you know, NFL guys. And a lot of times it's it's not a name to me because a lot of those people are the biggest a-holes that there are. Um <laughs> But sometimes it's just, you know, uh, like uh, this group of farmers that I have, uh, producer dudes actually doing some work for now. Coolest, most down-to-earth people. We talk this great stuff. You know, uh, I have a celebrity chef, you know, person. And, and but we don't, we don't generally even talk about food with them. You know, my football guys, we don't talk about food. It's just, it's a really unique thing. But it's, for me, being able to call somebody, like one of my NFL guys, and say, hey, what's, can you talk to the training staff? I've got this hurting right now. You know, it's... It, it's a really diverse thing that I don't think people think about, but that aside from some fun connections and some little fringe benefits, it is getting to know people that are really, really good at a really diverse set of, of, you know, things. Um, some of the best fishermen that I have had in my boat are people that don't know anything about fishing. And I, I kind of ask them like, so what do you do? Because they pick up on it so quickly right. and it turns out, you know, they're the CEO of XYZ company that, you know, you definitely would know, but, Again, I keep those names kind of private. And I'm just like, I know why this guy is the CEO. Like, you know, sometimes these terms and these positions get, uh, you know, negative connotations to them because of whatever. But some of these guys, you're like, man, I, I know you could be the best. Whatever you do, you would be one of the best at it because of the way your mindset is and your work ethic and, and such. And then the people that are like, uh, you know, five minutes in, they're not doing anything. You know, and you go, what do you do? And, and it just seems to always make sense. You yeah. know what I mean? And exactly. so. I, with a positive spin on that, give me some stuff of the people that you've met along the way. Maybe it's not even with the blade, but just as a outdoor communicator. How about that? Well, the you're right. It's the people that make the job fun and make it interesting and uh, or shitty sometimes. It, 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 sometimes, um, and you know, because people are uh, they're quirky, but they're also uh, you know interesting in their own right. Early on, um, probably a year after I took over for Pollock, I got an email from a guy who lived up at Devil's Lake in Michigan. He was a retired 
carryout owner from Toledo. And uh, the guy's name is John Zolke. He had uh, done some charter work on Lake Erie, filling in for different people. So he was a fisherman. Um, and he emailed me about wild turkey hunting because I hadn't written anything about it to that point. And this was, you know, fairly early on. And so I said, well, why don't you educate me? And uh, so I went up there and, and sat down with him. And this is a guy who worked his like crazy his entire life. If you own one of those carryouts, you know, you're going to work at 5 a.m. and you're going home at 11 most nights. And the, the key to making money is not have to hire a bunch of people. So he did worked really hard. He did really well, bought a place on Devil's Lake, demolished an old cottage, built a beautiful home there. So he's going to hunt and fish in his retirement. So he picked up wild turkey hunting at age 60. That was the first time oh. that he, he hunted. And by the age of 69, he had a world slam. And in the in wild turkey hunting, that means that you've taken one of each of the six subspecies on the North American continent. So he's gone to Mexico. He's gone to Florida. He's gone to Nebraska. He's got the, you know, the different subspecies from around here. And he had all these wild turkeys, full body mounts in a, like a gallery there on the second level of his home. And wow. he, he had the taxidermy work done by somebody in Kentucky who is supposedly the, the best around at wild turkeys. These things are stunning. When he passed away, that collection, you know, went to Cabela's. That's how good these were. But anyways, he, he starts explaining it to me and I'm thinking, you know, this guy, um, real character, which, you know, enrich our lives all the way. So we're just chatting and I find out, well, he went to Ohio state. Well, when did you go there? He tells me the year. Well, what'd you do? He goes, well, I went on a golf scholarship and he was on the same golf team with Jack Nicholas, you know, and wow. so the story keeps getting better and better. And so, you know, we talk about wild turkey hunting and all. And then I said, well, you know, you're living right here in Devil's Lake. I said, you know, so I'm assuming you're a bass fisherman. He goes, no, I'm a bluegill fisherman. And after talking to people around there, you know, it turned out he was the best bluegill fisherman in the Irish Hills. And so I went fishing with him a few times and, uh, you know, he was catching a lot of nice bluegill and he would only keep, you know, 20 or so each time. And I said, what are you doing with all these fish, John? And he said, well, I clean them and I freeze them. And then in uh, Labor Day weekend each year, my church, which is at the other end of the lake, the Catholic parish, they have a fish fry and I supply all the fish. And I said, you supply all the fish? And he goes, well, some of these other bums might throw a few in here and there, but I supply the majority. And so I went out and looked in his garage in the freezer and he, I bet he had, you know, 1200 bluegill fillets in there for that, that falls fish fry. And so my wife and I went to the fish fry that year and uh, just the whole time I'm getting to know him better. I probably fished with him maybe a dozen times. Uh, he passed away last year. He had um, melanoma that he picked up from, all those charter trips on Lake Erie with no sunscreen, fair skinned dude, you know, and uh, he fought that for a number of years and so on. And eventually it got him, but uh, we're out fishing and, you know, he's, he's in his seventies at this point 
And uh, he says he doesn't feel good. And I said, well, what are you doing this for? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, the fish, you know, for the fish fry. I said, let somebody else do that. And he goes, no, I figured the only way I'm ever going to get into heaven is by doing this. And uh, and so interesting. He, okay. When he passed away, you know, I wrote a story about him and what a cool guy he was and, you know, ornery and, you know, always crabby and everything, but in a in a fun way. And I said, uh, you know, that's what he told me. He, was a, he says, I figured this is the only way I'm going to get into heaven. And so I said, I, I think he's probably already there, you know, with the number of fish that he caught. But uh, just, a, you know, one of the characters that enrich our lives so much. And, uh, you know, we caught a lot of fish together, solved all the world's problems in three hours, you know, on Devil's Lake, you know, at, uh, you know, starting at about seven o'clock in the morning. But uh, a good guy. You know, went to the Devilbus, uh, you know, Toledo guy to his core, but somebody who was just so interesting on so many different levels. And, uh, you know, as a, as a wild turkey hunter, a bluegill fisherman, a, you know, business owner, but he had that um, attention and intensity to detail that I'm sure he needed in that business. And then he applied that to his turkey hunting and his fishing and so on. And, and I've seen that you know, kind of the way you describe those, maybe a CEO in the boat who hasn't been walleye fishing, but in a half an hour, he knows the game, you know, he knows the Crazy. game. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I've, this guy was that same way and, um, you know, somebody to pick up, it's a very, very difficult sport because turkeys are so, um, uh, acutely tuned in to, uh, their surroundings because everything out there is trying to eat them or kill them. And, you know, for him, Isn't to, their vision, like crazy, good, unbelievable vision and hearing, and they pick up everything. And so for him to master that sport, basically in a decade and accomplish something that 99% of uh, lifelong wild turkey hunters never accomplish, that was indicative of the type of person and character that he was and everything he did. He did with that, you know, same level of attention to detail and so on. And that's why, you know, he caught enough bluegills to get him into heaven. Yeah, I, I just wonder anymore when I see people with fishermen, like, obviously, it's my living. It's like a good friend of mine in the hunting industry says, yeah, I'm damn serious about my hunting. It's how I feed my family. And, it, you know, it's the same thing for me with the fishing. But I just think people lack passion anymore with stuff. Like for me, it's fishing, but for somebody else, it may be, I don't know, cheerleading camp or something. But right. just don't you, you kind of see this? Like people just kind of give up and just, well, okay. I think it's, yeah, I think it's that everything is supposed to be easy. And, um, you know, I've had people uh, call me or email me and say, yeah, we read about all this walleye fishing on Lake Erie. And, you know, we drove up from Cincinnati and uh, we went out there for the whole day and we caught two fish. And, you know, like I'm supposed to have some apology or some explanation. I said, yeah. I said, there's some very, very good fishermen that have the same experience. You know, it's not a given. It's just um, the next day and the one after that and maybe doing something different the following day to improve your success. But you're right. I don't I don't see that level of passion, you know, that I think should be there. And that's why. I think the ranks, of, especially on the hunting side, uh, you know, the ranks of hunters has declined significantly in the last 20 years. And it's to the point now where I'm concerned about them being able to sustain 
you know, the ODNR because 97% of the, the division of wildlife comes from licenses. And if you don't have the hunters buying the licenses and the deer permits, you're not going to be able to have the staffing you need. And I think it's people expect it to be easy. You know, hunting isn't easy. Walleye fishing isn't easy. It takes a level of commitment and passion and understanding and sacrifice in order to to do it and be successful at it over the long term. But a, lo- a lot of people just, you know, think it should be, uh, you know, this should come easy. And if it doesn't, I give up. So Matt, yeah. where do you uh, where do you see the industry going? I mean, you've been interested and been part of this for a long time. I mean, the outdoor industry. I mean, you know, what has changed in during your time, and where do you think it's going? Well, I think um, on the fishing side, I see uh, an upward, you know, move, and I think part of that is that. Um, you know, fly fishing became very sexy and very attractive for a lot of people. So there's a, a lot more fly fishing. No, not me. A lot, a lot more fly fishermen than there were, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And, and I think I, I'm not a huge fan of the kind of what I say that like there's like a snob or an elitist level in fly fishing, and I'm not a big fan of that. But I think if it brings more fishermen out. You know, it's good for the the whole group and all. And I think we're doing a reasonably good job educating kids and introducing them to fishing because it's much easier to do than it is to educate them and introduce them to hunting. I'd like to see more of that. Um, It it troubles me that I used to work the zoo, Toledo Zoo fish summer fishing camp, and I'd have, you know, fifth and sixth graders in there. And I have 30 kids and I'd say, okay, how many of you ever fished before? two hands go up by the time I was that age. And I'm sure Ross was the same way. You know, I was fishing on my own at reservoirs, cleaning my own fish, getting my own bait and so on. And I'm thinking these kids are missing out, you know, on a lot of really outstanding opportunities, but I think they're, we're doing a little better job of introducing kids to fishing. And I think once you do that, you created a, a lifelong fisherman in probably half of those, you know, cases and all because of all that it brings. But I'm I'm concerned overall that people are not enjoying, appreciating, and experiencing the outdoors as much as they should. And it's you know we can beat this you know thing to death, but so many people are finding their comfort zone with their phone or social media or, you know, electronic companionship, I guess, of some kind. Whereas some of my best experiences and my best memories in my life came with a couple of my brothers in a boat at an outpost camp in Manitoba or fishing with my father-in-law on the Portage River during the white bass run and given 75 fish to a couple guys who were on shore and couldn't catch any. I mean, those, those are the things that I remember. I don't remember boy last week when I was scrolling on, uh, you know, Twitter, it was really fun. And this, I mean, those things are so empty to me, those experiences. And so I'm, you know, in the big picture, I'm concerned that um, the current generation and the ones to come, you know, will they have the appreciation, you know, for the outdoors, for hunting and fishing and hiking and camping and wetlands and all that? Will they have the the understanding and the appreciation of those things to sustain them, you know, like we should? I don't know. 
you know, I, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about that. Um, I don't like the, uh, and this isn't going to make me any friends, but I don't like the Bass Pros and the Cabela's of the world's kind of gobbling up. You know, I used to like to go into a bait shop and see a guy sitting behind the counter with a cigarette and a cup of coffee and bitching about the weather or his wife or something. And, you know, guys in there talking about fishing and it smelled kind of earthy and all, you know, those places, we have a few of them here along the lake, fortunately, but, you know, there used to be those bait shops in every little town and now they're gone, you know? And so I, I am concerned, um, you know, for the environment, you know, that my grandkids are going to grow up in. I got four grandsons and, uh, you know, I bring them to boot camp here and at our house and try to teach them to fish on the pond and boot camp. I like that. It, it's, it should be embarrassing for a 15 year old kid when a nearly 70 year old man can skip a rock better than you can and can climb a tree better than you can. And so I'm worried about, you know, those kids. And one of the things people I hear from a lot, you know, at, at the blade, single moms who want to find somebody to teach their son or their daughter to fish or how to camp or build a fire or pitch a tent or, you know, any of those things, shoot a bow and they don't have anybody. So I, in a long kind of wandering tangent ridden answer to your question, <laughs> I am concerned um, because I think that if kids today grow up and don't, experience the same things that we did they're they're really getting cheated so your producer dude's gonna kill me on this one too i'm sure i'm gonna get a text message in five seconds because he says i get to be a grumpy old man before my time but like in my boat i see it where you've got people you know we do a lot of trolling right like that's that's a lot of what goes on out there so there's time where you know we're conversating and then you get people and and it's not i'm not just gonna blame teenagers or 20 year olds or whatever. Right. I mean, they get 60, 70 year old people, the same thing. They're buried in their phone. Hey, let me just finish this email. We got three fish on like, guys, where's your excitement. But even when we're jigging or something and the guy's got a phone in one hand, we've, we've lost many phones over the side. And, and during my guide trips, cause people are trying to play in their phone and, and half-ass fish, if you want to call it that. I do get a little pissed, not going to lie to you because it's like, well, I want to have success too. I want these guys engaged. Cause if they're not right. engaged, I'm like, mm -hmm. I might as well just not be here. But where I'm going for that is, you know, when I was in college, fishing was that you were a geek or a nerd. Like that was it. now. Right. Dude, Ohio State has has boats. They have a fishing program. They, I mean, these guys are the rock stars. These are the, the non-quote right. athletic uh, mm -hmm. guys at Ohio State that are, you know, they're bringing pride to the university or whatever. And I just wonder, like, you know, that term fishing for likes, just like, you know, girls get the, the Instagram things or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's like. Is that still, in your opinion, you know, positive for fishing because they're, they're doing it, but they're probably not doing it for their reason. And if we can't get a, a, a good post out of it, we're not going to do it today. You know, that mentality. I, I'm not fond of it, but I think anything helps. And to your point, Adrian College in Michigan, the biggest studs on campus are the bass fishing team guys. And that's something that uh, is a phenomenon that's unique there, but we've also seen it grow across the country where collegiate and even high school fishing teams are now a thing. Yeah. They're a thing. They weren't a thing when I was in school, believe me. And they're now a thing. And I think, although 
It's not ideal because it's not for everyone. I think it, every little bit helps, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, somebody sees that and say, well, I want to learn that, or I want to take part, or what does it take to get on the team? I mean, the coach at Adrian told me that he regularly gets phone calls from kids in California and Texas and Alabama and all that want to come to Adrian, Michigan, and be on the bass fishing team. They don't want to come there and be on the football team or the basketball team. They want to be on the bass fishing team. And I think, although it's, you know, one unique example, I think um, anything that promotes and proliferates the sport is beneficial, even though I don't think you should be fishing for clicks. You should be fishing because you enjoy it. And then it has these ancillary benefits where actually, well, yes, you can bring very good protein to the table and you can have exceptional time. I mean, those, those, uh, from when my dad was alive, Ross, we took, uh, fishing trips to Canada for 26 years, my dad and my five brothers and I, and occasionally we would bring along a brother-in-law who had passed the, the test. If they were a wimp, they weren't gone. They weren't gone. <laughs> I was going to say, what is the test? What is the test? If they ever whined, they weren't gone. And so some of those times you had no cell phones, no news. You're at an outpost camp. You know, the world could be on fire. You wouldn't know it. And so you're out there and sure you're catching walleye and pike and, you know, late Lakers occasionally, but, it's the time you spent with those people. I mean, my brothers are all very successful. A couple of them run companies. There's a movie producer, a commercial real estate guy, and so on. When we get together, we don't talk about that. We don't talk about our stock portfolios or stuff. We talk about those trips. Remember this. Remember when uh, that guy at that other camp uh, was drunk and threw gas on the fire, and then Dad had to take care of him. We always took a doctor along. It was helpful. And remember that time, you know, when this happened, when, uh, you know, we didn't put the guts far enough away and there was a bear in camp. I mean, there is you, you know, fishing is about so many other things than what actually ends up on the end of your hook. You know, the camaraderie, camaraderie. Yeah. is it's it's un, it's irreplaceable. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, say kids that grow up today and whether they, you know, young kids or college or whatever. And they go through life and never experience that. They're missing something that I is is and has enriched my life and yours as well. And I think that's sad and unfortunate. And you know, there's only so much that I can do by you know volunteering at those fish camps. And I've had those single moms call me, and uh, you know, I'll get put together a, a, a spinning a Zebco spinning rod and give it to them and uh, say here, you know, and you know, take this and, and here's what you do or fix up a little tackle box. But I think, um, you know, there's only so much of that that we can do. It's up, it's a, you know, a, it, the parents, the grandparents have to create that bond, you know, whether it's fishing or whether it's hunting or taking kids. It needs kids to be more uh, grassroots. It, it does. It absolutely does. And, and uh, you know, so when I have my you know, grandsons here for boot camp. I mean, I make them climb a tree. We got an orchard. You're going to go climb a tree. You know, you're going to learn how to do this. Okay. Tonight we're going to go out, we're going to build a fire. And they're just standing there dumbfounded, like build a fire. You know, how, how does that happen? And so I just think it's, uh, 
you know, maybe it's boot camp. I like it. It's uh oh, we had one day where I was having trouble with my two older grandsons. They were probably uh, 13 and 15 at the time. And they're here in, in Northern Wood County out in the country. You got a pond, you got a barn, you got chickens, you got trees, everything. And it's 75 degrees, beautiful day. I get done in my office at home. I go out 1030. They're sitting on the couch on their phones or their Game Boys or whatever it was. And I told my wife, okay, tomorrow we're done. I said, tomorrow is officially no device day. I said, no phones, no TV, no Game Boys, no laptops, nothing. And they threw a fit. I mean, they were going to call child services on me. And uh, they called their mom back in Virginia and said, Grandpa's so mean. You know, he's doing this, he's doing that, and so on. And I said, we're going to do it. And so the next day, I got them up. And we started out, and they learned how to skip rocks across a pond. They learned how to go get bait out of the compost pile. They learned how to, you know, take a bluegill off the hook. We climbed trees. Later that night, we built a fire. <clears throat> and the next morning, was like, okay, what are we doing today? You know, they they had never experienced. So these are army brats. So they lived all over the world, and uh, but they never experienced any of those things. And I, I'm concerned about the hundreds of thousands of kids out there in this general area who are probably in the same boat, but they don't have a mean old grandpa to teach them those things. <laughs> I, I've said this in other podcasts and I don't remember which one it was, but I think that it stands true across all lines is I don't know anybody that doesn't like to fish. If they have somebody that is remotely in the know that takes them, you know, right. I mean, rather it's a farm pond or Lake Erie, uh, you know, rather it's a, a bluegill or a salmon, if somebody goes again, rather it's just getting outside people that enjoy those things. They don't even know that they like it until they, you know, they, I don't think they even know what it is that they like. They just like it. So right. obviously I, I do like fishing. I like catching better. No, mm -hmm. not going to lie. Mm -hmm. But, but as you get older, I a hundred percent and I'm like as goal oriented as you can get and pretty uh, intense. You could say, um, the, the end result is the camaraderie is still like, to your point is what I remember more than, if I, people are like, well, did you have 19 walleye today? I'm like, I have no idea. Right. My, right. my goal is to always know I only have, you know, the legal limit when we go in. Other than that, people always say, how many did you, how many did you throw? No idea. Don't care. Don't count. I'm not a counter. Don't care. Yeah. I think yeah. when you start focusing on those numbers, you're focusing on the wrong shit. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, you know, way back to the start of our conversation, you know, it's the people, you know, and, and, I met some incredible characters on those Canadian trips, guys running these outpost camps. And, uh, you know, they had great stories to tell, but uh, it's it's fishing that brings people together. And a lot of times, you know, I've created lifelong friendships that started with talking to a guy, you know, on, on the bank of the Maumee or, you know, somebody on a boat ramp up at Catawba or something. And, and I just think, Fishing has that particular allure that it, it brings people a very, you know, can be from very diverse backgrounds together. And we're all equals when we're out there on the lake. We're all equals. It doesn't matter if you got the fanciest, you know, $150,000 boat or there's some guy over there, you know, on a little putt putt with a 35 horse Evinrude. They're going to catch fish. Maybe they'll catch more than you do. I mean, I think there's so many things about fishing you know, that uh, 
I think are so valuable. And, you know, for me, my dad loved to fish, but he was a, a surgeon and had a very high pressure, you know, job. And I think on the water, whether we were fishing at one of his patients, Corey's, or we were on the lake, or we were, you know, somewhere off the map in Manitoba where nobody would have ever found us. I think um, what he liked about it was the solitude and also the the closeness you had with the people who were, you know, there enjoying the moment with you. And, you know, I'm sure you've had days where, you know, you wanted to get to just get to shore and sell your boat and find something else to do, you know, but I, I say days, dog and drink angel tears. Yeah. That's, yeah. The, the good days carry you through those times. I, I definitely, when I come home, um, you know, family and friends know if we had a good day or a bad day, cause I still yeah. give a shit, you know, but again, what is a successful day? I think that that definition has changed through yes. the years. Mm -hmm. Um, and partially because of being a little more careful on who and we have in the boat, um, you know, filtering that crowd a little bit yeah. because we can. Right. Um, so there, there's no doubt. Now, it is as lovey as this has been, you know, I got to do a hard right on you. We, we yeah. got to finish with, uh, you know, because again, I think you said people love crime and drama. I think that was your. Well, they do. Yeah. Okay. So one thing, because I don't think we've talked about this throughout, just little bits and pieces, because I actually got drug into the middle of it a little bit because A, I was there uh, when it actually went down. But then B, uh, you asked me for a quote because you know I'd shoot you straight and had some insight on this. And then all of a sudden, people started trying to, um, you know, attack me. And that's that big uh, Wisconsin poacher ring story. So you wrote a story about that. You walk these people through, and then I'll kind of interject some of, you know, the stuff that I saw is from in the, in the field, if you will. Well, this was during, uh, and, and stop me at any point, Ross, if I, I don't have the, the details 100% accurate because it's been a while. This was during the... Uh, spring walleye bonanza on lake erie where the western basin is loaded with fish they're very cooperative and if the weather is just reasonable then even the worst fishermen in the world can go out there and get a lemon in, in a short period of time it's it's incredible fishing time well there was a group of fishermen from wisconsin who had come to lake erie every spring to take advantage of this and in this particular instance the uh, Division of Wildlife law enforcement folks had kind of staked out an area because they got a tip that people who lived near there were seeing the same boats launching repeatedly during the day. And so, you know, to folks that aren't familiar with that, what they were doing is going out at the crack of dawn, quickly getting a limit, a daily limit of fish, coming in, taking those fish back to their camp, and freezing them, cleaning them, whatever they were doing, going back out, getting another limit of fish, and then sometimes doing the same thing, you know, three times in a day, but often at least twice in a day. And so they were breaking. So let, let me interject one thing on this. So aside from just like me and you going out in my boat three times or something, right. allegedly what was happening was they had they had booked multiple lodging places. So they would be switch clothes. And maybe we took Matt's truck in the afternoon and Ross's boat. And, and, and again, that's where I think where it comes in. It's not just like somebody says, Hey man, the bite's really good. We're going to keep some extra fish. Not that I'm condoning that, but this was like super premeditated. I mean, crazy premeditation. It this. was, 
it was a criminal enterprise because of the way it was structured and the number of people that were involved and everybody had to be in on the game at the same level. And there had to be people who were very specialized in how to clean and, and chunk these fish. So they weren't identifiable as to how many you had. And so this went on, they get busted and it's very clear the evidence, if you, you know, I'm sure you can recall more the detail, the evidence was overwhelming how many fish they had and how many licensed fishermen they had and the number of days. A bathtub full of fillets. Yeah, yeah the math. They, they, they filled the bathtub with fillets over the top of like what we're going to call a standard bathtub. And that right. was in addition to the freezers that they had running on generators. And I mean, yeah. and then another thing that, that I don't know if you remember, but I know that the, from some of the people, because I literally was there when the actual busts took place, totally by chance. Mm-hmm. Um, they These guys were running back out in the lake, and I'm like, what's, you know, what's, and again, rather, they were other people that weren't even involved, because, you know, when you have groups come from a certain area, just that same camaraderie right. thing, unfortunately, a little criminal mm-hmm. here. They were people dumping coolers of frozen fish to try to get rid of some of the evidence out in the lake. Right. Yeah, that's because they, they were calling people once when they were when they were hauling because there was multiple boats involved. So when they had some people at the dock and said, hey, boom, the bust is going down. They were right. texting and calling other people, telling right. them, hey, get rid of the fish. So so not right. only did did they rape the resource, they actually wasted a lot of it in, in those kind of measures to try to cover up, you know, their their ill deeds here. And so when they get busted. I didn't want to just write another poaching story because to me, this wasn't just another case of a couple guys overbagged a little bit, or like you said, they took a few extra fish because things were going well. This was a calculated criminal enterprise. And it also Agreed. It irritates me more when people think they can come from another state. Well, Ohio's got a lot of fish. We'll just go take a bunch from there. I would never dream of doing that anywhere first of all but to to go someplace else wisconsin has a lot of walleye you know catch your own fish if that's the way you want to approach it but that irritated me but then once i saw the the depth of this particular enterprise and how much they had poached and how sophisticated it was i wrote a bigger story about it and i wanted the i had to pry the names and the hometowns out of the division of wildlife because they hadn't all been prosecuted yet. And just to say, these people were charged. And so I had their names and their hometowns, and then the Milwaukee paper picked up our story. And so a lot of these guys who maybe were strutting around back in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I'm the biggest, baddest walleye fisherman here. Well, the light all all of a sudden was on them. Well, you're also a poaching dirt bag. And so they were they were extremely angry. And I got calls from a couple of them and from one guy's wife who said I ruined his life by writing that story. And I said, no, I didn't. He did. If his life is ruined, it was of his doing. All I did was report what took place. And so that case illustrated for me how poaching is a much more serious problem than people realize in Ohio on Lake Erie. You know, deer poaching is is unbelievable. Poaching of, you know, rare amphibians and reptiles is a thing here that people would never, you know, fully understand. But also how people aren't doing this because, you know, I lost my job and my wife and kids are starving. No, they're doing it because they're greedy 
pieces of crap that want to come, you know, take such advantage of this incredible resource we have. And those fish belong to everybody, you know, that lives here, whether you're a fisherman or not. Our natural resources, whether it's wildlife or minerals, you know, they belong to all of us. And so that theft that those guys tried to perpetrate was not only against Ross Robertson and Matt Markey, it was against, you know, an 80-year-old woman who's living out in Monclova that doesn't even know about it because that resource belongs to all of us. So I think every time one of these poaching cases comes up, I try to put as big a light as possible on it to if these people have no values, maybe we can shame them as much as possible. And Because our judicial yeah, I, system locally doesn't seem to feel that it's as big no. of a problem because they're like, well, they're no. coming here and they're, they're getting eaten hotels and, you know, booking no. stuff. And Some of the judges that I've spoken with almost seem like these wildlife cases are an annoyance. You know, I'm dealing with yeah. robberies and I'm dealing with, you know, child abuse and so on. Why, why are you bringing this in this, you know, this guy caught too many fish? Well, I think the, the punishments need to be more severe, both in time and, and monetarily, you know, because, you know, they've gotten a little better on the on the deer side where now they're putting a value on the rack and the that particular buck that you poached. And it gets into the thousands of dollars, which it should be. But I also think the the fines for poaching on Lake Erie, you know, walleye is our, that's our reserve. That's our our, uh, our cash, our, our bank account, the walleye in Lake Erie. So if somebody steals from that, I think the punishment should be more severe. And, uh, you, 100%. Know, you know, and, and anything I can do to bang on that drum, I'm going to do it every time, whether you know, you run these, you know, I asked for pictures of these guys. They didn't have them. I would have run their pictures, you know, with well, bug shots, you know, with this story about these walleye poachers. Cause these weren't, like we said, these weren't average guys that maybe just had a bad day and they kept a few extra fish. This was a let, criminal let operation. Me tell you, let me tell you one thing here is the perception on Lake Erie. And I think even a lot of our local organizations do not help us out because of the tourism and, and dollar bills, like everything else, the Maumee River situation, mm -hmm. all that. I mean, it's known snagging a lot of that. I understand to a certain point, but like, I feel like some of those people, and I've been very vocal and it's generally not well received by at least people that are being vocal about it. You know, privately, I think that it's mm -hmm. like much like politics, you know, people are like, yeah, man, keep, keep going. I'm like, where's everybody else? Why do I always have to be a mouthpiece of this? And, yeah. and I tell them, this is the deal. I've been to so many different fisheries traveling with my job through the years and seeing these places that are quote, the walleye factory to this and they're shit now. Right. And granted, we have more fish, but the analogy I always use for somebody listening to this to hopefully make this as a different perspective to think about how many people win the lottery, you know, they make whatever it is, $50,000 a year, 30,000, it doesn't matter. And they get millions of dollars. Maybe they got, they make a hundred grand a year or more. I don't, it doesn't matter. They get millions of dollars with the lottery. And those numbers are like 70 some percent are broke within two years. You know, right. file bankruptcy worse off than they were to begin with and i think that's the same thing here we have so many fish right now and our system is so healthy i can still remember in my lifetime where it wasn't right you know and not not in my adult life but the cuyahoga river situation where yeah. you know the jim foffers the legend of all legends on lake erie in my personal mind told me about going out fishing dark to dark to catch two or three walleyes and you know a bucket full of white bass and we are not that far that many bad hatches or some type of you know, 
nature's event from that being again you know maybe it's the, the asian carp or, or whatever it is and the mentality is and, and i think i've i know i told you this but this is like you said this has been quite a few years ago the thing to me that just said man we have a problem is, is when i was literally there they came in and they, they had like the sheriff i think it was um help block the ramp um because like nobody's getting in or out type of deal and so mm -hmm. we're all kind of stuck there we got boats lined up like it's a parade or something and one of the guys they had there that i literally overheard because i was literally feet away from him and one of the dnr officers the investigator said to him you don't have to answer this but i'm just kind of curious you know we got you on camera uh, why didn't you buy a license you know you've been here for two weeks or whatever it was and the right. guy literally his response was i've been coming here for 30 years i've only gotten one ticket for not having a license i'm way ahead of the game in uh you know fiscally obviously right and i can remember the officer looking at him and said well that's going to change today yeah but but unfortunately it's not even steep enough like you said it's kind of like the walleye cheater thing we talked about a little while ago has that you know if you were to do that same thing at, at first federal bank you, you'd be wearing cuffs and an orange jumpsuit for a while exactly and, and i i don't know that that's but i but again i think with the fishing thing it is the mentality because it's my job i'm passionate about it the same for you but for these other people it's just a hobby and well if it doesn't happen it doesn't happen and i don't think then those same people realize that it is a billion dollar industry fishing is nine times larger than the golf industry and when that goes bad hotels food gas stations they are going to drastically suffer like where i'm at in port clinton you know that without fishing that's a bad deal there right once once you lose that foundation it the problems just cascade all through the economy and the, the dominoes fall in a hurry and and i think you're right we we can certainly enjoy and celebrate our walleye fishery but i think we also have to be very astute guardians of that of that fishery because things can change you know there it's a it's a very big lake um you have multiple, you know, governments involved in the administration of that lake, but you know, one bad, you know, one calamity can change things in a hurry, and so we have to be more protective of it. I think, um, you know, we're doing a good job as far as trying to keep up on the environmental side of it, but you know, they, the fish don't last forever, and we're on a really hot streak right now as far as the the hatches go. You know, it looks good, but until it's not, until right? it's not. So it's just like your investments, you know, when the market's great. Yeah, things are things are really going well. But we know that it's probably going to go the other way at some point. And I'm old enough to remember when taking the boat out to uh, West Sister Island, all I saw was a green curtain coming off the bow. And, you know, if we caught if we caught a couple of walleye, we were thrilled. You know, we were thrilled. That was in the 70s, but not that long ago, really, in the big picture. And uh, we we have to be better guardians of, uh, you know, of what Stewards we have. Stewards of the sport. Because it, it's, it's no exaggeration or embellishment. We have the greatest walleye fishery in the world. And, you know, if, if we should protect that by every means, you know, that we can. I think that when you said about shaming them, it almost seems like the option right now because the judicial system and, like you said, some of the judges that don't put as much seriousness behind it and don't maybe help out our, our law enforcement guys, yeah. maybe the shame is, is the deal. Because in this case, uh, again, you correct me because I know you were more detailed with the behind the scenes. Uh, 
many of those people that were charged with this worked at a penitentiary or some type of jail. Yeah, they worked. Yeah, they worked together and and kind of concocted yeah. this together. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and several of them lost their job because of a because of public opinion and because of their so called role with basically upholding the law. Right. So yeah, and so and that, if you know we can't have a public square and put people in stocks anymore, so we can't we can't do that. Are you sure? Sh- shaming them is I think is the best tool we have right now, and that's names and faces and detailing you know everything they did and and you know my hope is that well like with that rossford case that i cited my hope is that they eventually catch that poacher that tried to take that trophy deer with a crossbow at four in the morning in somebody's front yard and then heard a noise or a light went on and so they split and the deer bled out you know there on the pavement i hope they catch that person and i will run their name and their photo and as much else as I can get about them, because, you know, they were stealing from you and me and everybody else when they tried to poach that deer. And then they wasted the resource, you know, in the in the commission of that crime. And I just don't think the the penalties, whether it's a fine or a few days in jail, are enough. And Ross, one thing I experienced, and I know we're, we don't want to you know, labor on the thing about the walleye cheaters, but I talked to the district attorney in Cuyahoga County, you know, several times during that case, they were annoyed that they had to handle that case. And they said, basically off the record, we got rapists and murderers and bank robbers here. You know, why are we screwing around with this walleye thing? It's a yeah, I, I heard, I heard behind the scenes, it, it was an election year and also the public right. perception because there were so many people that were pushing that or 100 percent. Right. This is mm-hmm. not where it's at. And so people would have been really upset then if they thought that the uh, the end result wasn't what they wanted. Right. Yeah. So it was uh, we have to do a better job of educating the judiciary and you know the legal side and so on about the importance of these you know, these resources, whether it's deer or fish or what it is. I mean, People, you know, steal things that, you know, we can't even imagine have value, but um, we, we need to educate the judicial and the legal side more so that they understand the penalties need to be more severe and they need to pursue them more aggressively. Interesting stuff. I mean, you could talk about these things all day long. I think what we've done is we've guaranteed ourselves a part two or three. This may even have to be a two part deal. Producer dude's <laughs> probably just editing nightmare. How he's going to cut this up or whatever. But yeah. just uh, make us a promise that uh, you'll come back and jot some notes down of some future stories, because I know we haven't even tapped like a quarter of what we could potentially talk about for sure. Absolutely. Um, I, I'd like to do that again. And, um, you know, there, there are a lot more things that, you know, that we can talk about. And so, uh, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. This is a avenue that I don't often get to use. And so uh, anytime you want to do it, just let me know. I I look forward to the next episode as they say. So (laughs) thanks Matt for joining us. Thank you for watching the big water podcast. I'm Ross Robertson. Big water fishing is our game. We're on, Producer, dude, I may need help because we do this enough. You do. We've done this enough. You should not need help. I should not need help. But yet here we are. So we are on Facebook. We are on Instagram at Big Water Fishing. Same as YouTube. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, Google, Amazon. Did I get them? Yeah, you got them. Basically, (laughs) if you Google Big Water, one word, fishing another, podcast, 
or fishing or something and you can't find us, you probably suck at fishing because if you can't find us, you're definitely not going to find a walleye. Maybe a bass because they're dumb and easy. But uh, in all seriousness, thanks for tuning in. Matt, thank you for your time. Until the next episode, we are out.